0: Today, in the narrative writing of Genesis, we encounter classic Old Testament themes and hard lessons about humanity, family, and relationships. In Joseph, we see a man who is believed to be dead, but who turns out to have the power of life. Joseph's brothers think they're doomed because of the way they've deceived their father, so they speak and act mostly out of a sense of fate. In Jacob, we see a father defined by the lies of his sons. He lives to grieve and protect himself from further loss. The main character is Joseph, the fourth and last founding father of Israel. Joseph has an oversized ego and is a tattletale, the the kind we all despised in grade school. As this lesson begins, Joseph is soon to be released from prison to become a rising star in Egypt. The decisions and actions of Joseph and others in these chapters prepare the way for the Exodus, which will happen generations later and will be God's greatest saving act for the Hebrew people in the Old Testament. Within the dreams, strained relationships, traveling, and Joseph's rise to fame, I would like to explore four major topics, including Jacob's grief, journey as a metaphor for life, hope and trust as understood by the Hebrew people, and finally, Judah's speech at the end of the lesson. Jacob's grief is unmistakable in today's lesson. Several terms are used for sorrow in the Bible, and the one used to describe Jacob's grief is the strongest. Jacob has lost his favorite son, Joseph, the son of Rachel, whom Jacob truly loved. In my own family, my uncle, my brother, my cousin, and my nephew all died very young. I observed their parents, including my mother and my sister, grieve the loss of sons But still, I can never know what it is like to lose a child. In his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, Rabbi Harold Kushner talks about how he grew and matured because of his son Aaron's illness and after his death at age 14. I am a more sensitive person, a more effective pastor, a more sympathetic counselor because of Aaron's life and death than I would ever have been without it. And I would give up all of those gains in a second if I could have my son back. I would forego all the spiritual growth and depth which has come my way because of our experiences and be what I was 15 years ago, an average rabbi, an indifferent counselor, and the father of a bright, happy boy." Like Rabbi Kushner, Jacob is a normal father. It seems natural for him to try to protect himself from further loss by not allowing Benjamin to make the journey to Egypt with his brothers. It seems natural, too, for him to blame his other sons for his loss. People try all kinds of defenses when they are grieving. Though Jacob appears to be paralyzed by grief in chapter 42, that changes in chapter 43. As the other sons beg him to send Benjamin with them to Egypt, Jacob finally breaks the cycle of grief in verses 11 to 14. He tells his sons to take Benjamin with them and says, May God Almighty grant you mercy in the presence of the man. You may know someone who has lost a child. Grieving parents and grandparents need us. One of the best ways to help is to be quietly present with the parent. To say the least, it is not easy. It doesn't require the right words, though. It requires the ability to allow the person to talk honestly as long as he wants to, even when he may not make sense. It means using the child's name and encouraging the parent to talk about him or her. It means letting the parent cry without trying to say something that will make her stop. It means accepting strong emotions without judging. It's a way of saying to the parent, I'm here and I am looking at your pain right along with you. This ministry of presence is the thing most needed after such a death, especially once all the services are over. Jacob sounds depressed and resigned after he says that he will let Benjamin go to Egypt. If I am to suffer bereavement, I shall suffer it, he says. But even so, his belief in God's mercy has won out. We are not told But for all we know, some caring friend helped Jacob come to this decision simply by being there with him and listening. The many journey stories in the first books of the Bible are written to help us see how God uses human beings to fulfill the promises of land, descendants, and covenant that He made to His chosen people. The journey theme includes both physical and psychological journeys. Joseph's first journeys in our lesson are within prison. First, he's promoted to what we would call a trustee. He's put in charge of Pharaoh's cupbearer and butler who are fellow prisoners. Through them, he becomes known to Pharaoh, gets out of prison, and moves to the highest levels of Egyptian power. The brothers' physical travels take them to and from Egypt twice with much drama along the way. I know a woman whose husband worked in an unstable area of the insurance industry. Though they weren't Arkansas natives, they loved it here. She called one day to say that they would be moving to another state for her husband's employment. They hated to leave, but she told me she was sure the Lord was directing them to the new place. Then came two or three more moves disrupting the children's schooling and the adults' social lives. But each time, the woman's reaction was the same. I know God wants us in this new place. Now, I was quietly thinking, well, why can't the Lord decide on one place? But the truth is, though, that her attitude was much more in tune with God than mine was. Her trust in God's guidance kept her moving gracefully through her family's journey instead of questioning and dwelling on the negative. St. Gregory of Nyssa's classic comment was this, Abraham left his home without knowing where he was going, a sure sign he was going the right way. Psychological or inner journeys are important in this lesson as well. From them, we begin to learn how God wants his human creation to live together as family. On his inner journey, Joseph sees God as his guide through whatever circumstances life brings. He could have felt sorry for himself, which is so tempting, or spent his time nursing his grievances against his brothers. But instead, he holds on to the belief that his life is more than his difficulties. In verse 18 of chapter 42, Joseph says, I am a God-fearing man, meaning not fear as we know it, but vigilance and loyalty to God's covenant. With these traits, he develops the mature ability, and I wish I had more of it, to shake off lesser fears to move beyond the human understanding of life's circumstances. He uses his abilities to become an effective and influential leader in spite of all his setbacks. From the brothers' inner journeys, we learn a lot about sin. Chapter 42, verse 1, paints a sharp contrast between Joseph and the brothers. While Joseph is in Egypt, enjoying a 100% approval rating, the brothers appear weak and ineffective. Jacob sounds like a typical bewildered parent when he says to them, in effect, Why do you keep looking at one another? It seems he has to tell them every move to make. Another contrast comes in verse 8, when Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they do not recognize him. The word recognize here signifies spiritual insight. The brothers are not ready yet for the painful truth, but Joseph is. He is further along on his inner journey than they are. It is agonizing to think about the brothers living with their father all those years, knowing what they had done, and having to witness his terrible grief. Their relationship with one another is poisoned as well because none of them can be sure that the others will keep the secret. Their anxiety contributes greatly to the suspense of their travels to and from Egypt. The core biblical understanding of sin is breaking a covenant relationship. Sin can be defined as being disconnected from God through the failure to love. The term right relationship in Hebrew always meant living not only in harmony with the community but acting justly towards all within the community. The brothers' evil treatment of Joseph and their continuing anger and jealousy are destroying right relationships of life established by God. Sinning has led them away from God. Only admitting their sin and guilt will nudge them back. When their journey leads them finally to admit their sin, they begin to realize Joseph's pain as well as their own. In verse 21, they say, We saw the anguish of his heart when he pleaded with us. What a step. Each of us can probably imagine their raw emotions because I'm assuming here that we have all hurt people in our own lives. Admitting the truth of guilt can be terribly painful, but the important thing is that God is there in that pain. The separation from God is over. I haven't made many physical moves or journeys in my life, and I'm still only 50 miles away from my hometown. But I can tell you that I have a long history of resisting the guidance of God on inner journeys. It's not easy for me to follow when God tries to guide me, for example, to accept or respect people I don't particularly like or agree with, or to trust God about growing old or to stop depending so much on the approval of others. And the big one I resist, the Lord's nudging me to be more faithful to regular prayer. If only God would just ask me to move to a new city, From the Genesis narrator, I think we can learn that our faith journey does not consist of having the right religion, doctrines, or theology. It consists of going where the Lord leads, especially within ourselves, especially when we may not want to. The Old Testament understanding of faith, trust, and hope always inspires me. Many disturbing things were happening as I worked on this lecture. The US stock market is ridiculously volatile. High unemployment continues much longer than expected, and it has been 10 years since the tragedy of September 11, 2001. There is plenty to disturb us in other areas of the world as well. Against the fear and worry this produces, we can contrast the faith of Joseph and the Israelites. The core claim of their faith is that God is utterly reliable, simply that. Joseph believes that the future is inscrutably in God's hands and trusts completely in God's ability to bring the future about. You and I are used to thinking of the future as being the product of our efforts, and oh, we do work so hard at it. And Pharaoh is the same as he frets over his dreams, but not Joseph. His faith tells him that God will cause the future and God's power can be relied upon to bring it about. Proverbs says, many are the plans of the human heart, but it is the decision of the Lord that endures. In the Bible, trust in is more important than assent to. Again, relationship trumps religious teaching. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes, though, that trust also implies action and practice. Trust gave Joseph Joseph the confidence to act, to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, to manage Egypt's resources, to forgive his brothers. Joseph and the Israelites had no doubt that God had a special love for them, and so they came to expect God to speak to them and act in their lives. They believed that God's loving faithfulness would bring a future of well-being far beyond what they could see by looking at current events. That's why Joseph could so confidently interpret Pharaoh's dream or give God's interpretation of it. In chapter 41, he says to Pharaoh in simple trust and hope, It is not I, but God who will respond for the well-being of Pharaoh. God has made known to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And the matter has been confirmed by God, and God will soon bring it about. Just as a free, sovereign God was at work in the very center of Egyptian life, Jesus was at work on earth. Jesus is at work within all the problems and events I mentioned earlier. And our lives are more than those problems. God is capable of bringing about newness, even to situations that seem to us so deep-rooted that they cannot be changed. The difference is that now we are the fascinating characters chosen to play parts in God's plans. And we are called to use our trust and imagination to help God's plan take shape. God helped Joseph develop the resources he needed to overcome all his difficulties. In the same way, God can work around and through our flaws and fears to cause good. I'm challenged by this lesson to try to develop the habit of choosing hope over despair. Pessimism, fear, anger, stubbornness, violence, they all seem to grab the, in- the attention of today's modern culture. Negativity evidently sells. Newspapers, talk radio, blogs, and politicians thrive on it. Be very afraid, they, see- they all seem to be selling. But we don't have to buy it. Hope, as opposed to worry, truly ought to be the distinctive mark of our Christian faith in today's world. Could we all try to choose hope? As we can see from today's lesson it's a choice that has enormous potential. Lesson 9 ends with an emotional and persuasive speech by Judah, who speaks for himself and his brothers. He is in despair as he steps forward to beg Joseph not to keep Benjamin in Egypt, but to allow him to return with his other brothers to Canaan and their father. The speech is a good way to review the entire story of the brothers' journey back and forth between Canaan and Egypt. But the speech is most important because it reveals just how much Judah and the other brothers have grown spiritually. The spontaneous speech touches on human emotions that resonate in every generation. Judah has begun to realize the consequences of his earlier sin, to take responsibility for it, and perhaps to believe that he can repent and be forgiven. Judah humbly appeals to Joseph's decency for sympathy, for himself, for Jacob, and for Benjamin. He makes the incredible offer to become a slave himself, to keep his father from further suffering. It is ironic that as we end our lesson, we are hearing from Judah. The very one who urged his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery and convinced his brothers to lie to their father is the one who shows us the hope of redemption, the importance of courage and taking risks, and the supreme value of life's human relationships.